Well, uh, good morning, and you guys know what we do in here on Sunday mornings. We're going over uh, some core convictions that we want you to have. We've been studying the gospel over this, the course of this semester, uh, just looking at the components of the gospel and trying to go deeper um, in, in the message. Why are we studying the gospel? All right, we need to go quick, because i got a lot here. It's a first importance, and where do we get that language from? 1 Corinthians 15, good. Uh, why is it of first importance? It's how we're saved, yes. What else? It's how we grow, yes. What else? Evangelism is the message we share with other people. So we need clarity in the gospel. It's of first importance to Paul. It needs to be of first importance to us um, in really understanding clarity. Now, how do we summarize sort of the, the, maybe the four themes of the gospel? So, number one, God. We need to know about God, right? We need to know who He is, what He's, a, what he's done. He's our creator. Um, we're accountable to Him. What else do we need to know? Man, okay? We need to know that we have been created by God. We have a purpose, uh, and we failed in that purpose. We've rebelled against God, um, and we're totally corrupted, and we need redeeming. So, after God, man, was third? Christ, and, what, and we need to know that He is the what? Atonement, yes, he's the substitutionary savior, right? He takes the place of mankind and puts himself in front. And finally, response, right, the response of faith and repentance. We haven't gotten there yet, so I won't ask any questions about that, all right? So we've been in this section of Christ and uh, looking in-depth at him. And I want to continue to look in-depth today about what makes up the heart of the gospel. So if you remember back, we looked first at Isaiah and kind of did a, a run-up to, to Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And we, looked at, we let Isaiah kind of frame the categories of what the Messiah would come to do. And then we jumped into Luke uh, last week, and we looked um, exclusively at his life and his death. So remember, we can say, you know, within Christ, we can say there's, there's several events that make up the heart of the gospel. And those events have significance. They're interpreted for us in the Bible as to what they mean. So what are those events? I already gave you two of them. His life, right? His life. So we talk about his birth and all those things, but his life, and particularly his sinless life, right? That he was blameless. We looked at how the, the Luke in particular draws that out in the first couple chapters of Luke, and then he bookends it. You know, so he was a boy, remember that, and he was faithful to the law, obedient to his parents, submissive to them. He withstood the temptation as an adult in the garden. Uh, fail, he, he succeeds where Adam failed, where Israel failed. And then in... in in chapter 22 of Luke, again in, the, again in the garden, he prays and submits his will to the Father as a, as a perfectly obedient son uh, to fulfill his, his Father's will in his death. So his life, he was actively obedient. And then his death, that was the second, the second event that happened, his crucifixion. I um, mean, Luke 23 details that out for us. And not only does it tell us what happened, but it also tells us the significance of what happened. Um, by referring back to these Old Testament categories. I'm not going to drag you through all that again, because that took every bit of the time we had last week, okay? So that is thrilling, but this week I want to get to the, probably the, some of the, the most thrilling parts of the heart of the gospel, and that is the last two events, which we would call the resurrection. We would combine the ascension with that. Resurrection, ascension is number three, and then the return of Christ, number four. We're going to talk predominantly about his resurrection this morning. 
and, and what that signals. So if you, if you want to just really quickly, I don't even have to turn here. I'll just turn here for you and read it. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we've been. Just kind of launch our time this morning by talking, going back to 1 Corinthians 15. And look again here in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So there's the death. In accordance with the Scriptures. Wow, we saw that last week from Luke 23. And notice this. Verse 4. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So His resurrection, not just His death, but His resurrection was in accordance with the Scriptures. Just want to point that out to you as we launch in. So what I want to do right now is just briefly, as briefly as I can, kind of set the Old Testament backdrop for you for the resurrection. Then I want to talk about these events that happen, these kind of network of events where resurrection, ascension, and then Jesus giving his spirit. So those are all three bundled together, um, these events. We'll talk about what those are. And then finally, I want, to, I want to ask the question, what does the resurrection signal for us? Like what, when we see it, like what is the interpretation? What is the significance when we see Christ uh, returning from the dead? So we've got to move quickly. So I'm not going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to throw a lot at you. My encouragement would be just to kind of write down verses that stand out to you because we're not going to have time to turn to all of them, okay? So if we're thinking about resurrection, we're thinking about the Old Testament context and background of resurrection. Um, it's kind of often stated that the Old Testament is very scant when it comes to this view of the resurrection. Like It's only like Daniel 12 and some other places that maybe Isaiah talk directly about this resurrection from the dead. As we're going to see, uh, that is not the case. I think from the first pages of Scripture, um, we have hope of life. So, in the garden, do you remember what was in the middle of the garden? The tree of life, okay? Alongside of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is very interesting, very puzzling. Don't have a lot of answers to what was going on here. It's very intriguing to me. I've been thinking a lot about this over the last probably four weeks. And so there's this tree of life in the midst of the garden. Adam is not, he's not sinful. He's definitely not innocent. He's good. He's created good by God. But there is this tree of life implied that if Adam eats it, he's going to live forever. In some, I don't know what you would call it, like confirmed state. There's also the forbidden tree. And we know how that goes. He chose the forbidden tree. Adam and Eve were deceived, or Eve was deceived. Adam was passive. And they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which led to death, right? Not life. And if you remember, after the fall, they were kicked out of the garden, and specifically so that they would not eat of the tree of life. And there the text says, lest they live forever. In the Greek translation of that passage, it's eternal life. Lest they live eternally. That's the, the, kind of the, the phraseology that we get for eternal life. Lest they live eternally. So you see right there, in the opening of, of, the, of the account of Genesis, we've got this reference to eternal life. It seems that the tree, and thus eternal life, which resurrection life is what you should think of, the tree, and thus eternal life, was a reward for covenantal obedience. It was a reward for covenantal obedience. Adam and Eve did not overcome the serpent in their test in chapter 3. Instead, they failed. 
And so they were forbidden, cut off from this tree. <clears throat> now, we're told in chapter 3, verse 16, that somehow an offspring of Eve will reverse the curse. Remember that? And what is the curse? Death, ultimately. Right? Death. So, if he's going to reverse the curse, what's that, what, what does that mean? There's going to be life, right? There's going to be life again. This implies that, that he will regain life. He will regain entrance into the garden, and he will grant his people to eat from the tree of life. And that will happen by his covenantal obedience. All right, so you can write down Revelation 2 7, Revelation 22 2, 22 14, and 22 19 for this reference to the tree of life being given to God's people via Jesus. So somehow an offspring of Eve is going to reverse this curse, which means, implies the regaining of life. So then, again, just setting the Old Testament context here, then this, we know the line, kind of the line of Eve, narrows down to Abraham's family, right? And this family, it's said of, of this family, that they would bring blessing, here, not curse, blessing, to the nations, plural, through the offspring, Okay, so blessing instead of cursing, and that implies life from the dead. That gets the, the Abraham's family turns into the nation, and Israel, as God's son, is, is set apart to be a light to the nations, implying the hope of resurrection life. And we see light is a theme throughout the Bible of life, truth, life, resurrection. So there to be this light, implying there's the hope of resurrection sort of tied up with the nation of Israel. Then it gets narrowed again, not just to Israel, but to the offspring would be David, the kingship. And David himself is promised, he's promised, in 2 Samuel 7, he's promised an eternal kingship. Eternal kingship. God promises to plant the people of Israel in the land forever in 2 Samuel 7, 10 and 11. To plant his people in the land forever through the establishment of an eternal Davidic kingship. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. So there will be an eternal king who will reign, and, he, and through that reign of that king, the, the, then the people of God will be planted in the land forever. And in particular, God promises that David's throne, his throne will be established forever. So this is all 2 Samuel 7. So this either means a throne established forever, that David's going to have offspring perpetually, kind of, under perpetuity, and there's always going to be a king on the throne. That's what it could mean. Or it could, the other option, is that there will be an eternal king. One king who will reign forever. And you think, well, which way does it go? Well, David himself took it to be the latter. David himself took it to be the latter, meaning one king forever. So how do we know that? A couple of his psalms. Okay, a couple of his psalms that he wrote tell us. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. David calls, he looks kind of prophetically out ahead and calls, calls this coming Messiah his Lord. Okay, his Lord in Psalm 110. And that this 
king would be of a different order, the order of Melchizedek, which we don't even have time to get into that. He would be of a different order, a priest of a different kind, and he would reign forever at God's right hand in particular. That's a key phrase, at God's right hand. Psalm 110. So David himself identifies it as a singular offspring to reign forever in Psalm 110. And David also knew, according to the promise in 2 Samuel 7, David also knew that his line would ultimately not see the corruption of death. He says that in Psalm 16. His line would not see, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Now in the psalm, it kind of looks like he's talking about himself. But he died. So I think in light of what he's talking about is the, is the Davidic family, the Davidic, the promises made to David in his dynasty, they will, to a particular person out in the future, he will not see corruption. He won't let him see death. He won't let him go down into Sheol ultimately. Which implies, again, resurrection. He knew his line would ultimately not see the corruption of death. Psalm 16. Now, that should be enough, right? But there's more. Isaiah picks up on these themes, as we saw several weeks ago, didn't we? He predicts the coming Messiah will reign forever on David's throne. Okay, again, so Isaiah is identifying it's going to be an eternal king. Isaiah 9, 7. Reign forever on David's throne. But first, we saw, chapter 53, that he'll die for the sins of the people. Isaiah 53. But his life, in that chapter in Isaiah 53, his life won't end in death. It says there in that chapter that his days will be prolonged, in quotes, his days will be prolonged, and, quote, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Meaning he will he'll adjudicate God's will perfectly, i.e., in his reign. A dead king can't do that. And not only will he live, Isaiah says, but it's implied that he will cause others to live as well. In chapter 53, again, I'm just talking about Isaiah 53, Isaiah says that he will make many who are not originally righteous, he will make them righteous. And righteous people don't die eternally. This implies resurrection. Earlier in Isaiah, he predicts resurrection explicitly in chapter 26. He says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 26, 19. These resurrected servants will inherit the land, he says, in Isaiah 65. The resurrected service will inherit the land, which we realize climaxes in the new creation, a creation from the beginning that was intended to be full of life. All that's in Isaiah 65. And then in Isaiah 66, he says, the people of the Lord will remain in this new heavens and new earth forever. Not dead, but alive. In a resurrection, life. And again, Isaiah says, as a result of his enthronement, this king, the king will enable all who follow him to share in the blessings of the covenant. It's Isaiah 55. He'll allow all who follow him to share in the blessings of the covenant, which includes the Spirit of God 
and the Spirit will make His people obedient. Okay? Isaiah 55. And then, last text is in the book of Daniel, Daniel 12. It becomes explicit, then, that the people share in this hope of resurrection and glorification right alongside the king in Daniel 12. So as we can see, from, from the garden all the way to the end of the prophetic literature, there's hope of life. There's hope of resurrection, and it's bound up in a son who will come and rise from the dead. So when we hit the Gospels, and we see that Jesus, the pattern is he's identified as that son in the first approximate half of all the Gospel narratives. He's identified as the son, then it pivots, and he comes to die, and then again, he comes to rise. In particular, Luke Acts is very helpful here. So if you want to go ahead and turn over there, you can turn to Luke um, 23 and 24. And it's unfortunate that John stands in between Luke and Acts because it kind of confuses us. We kind of forget that Luke is volume 1 and Acts is volume 2. And it's really in Acts, we'll, we'll see this in a minute, but it's in Acts that we get the apostles' interpretation of the resurrection. If you think Luke... In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is giving a lot of significance to his death and the significance of the death. What, is the, what does the death mean? We get a foretaste of the resurrection and what it means, but Acts will then unpack the significance of the resurrection for us and its implications. So, so as we get to the New Testament, what we see is there's this sort of several events, like I said earlier, that go together. There's resurrection. Jesus comes back from the dead. On Sunday, the first day of the week, then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven, and then some, I guess, approximately 40 days later, he gives the Spirit. And as we'll see, all those are connected. So the apostles interpret his resurrection and ascension as part of his enthronement, or his kingship, his glorification. (laughs) It's gurgling back there. I don't know what's going on. Um... Just try to hang with me. <laughs> so, it's ironic that the, the, I have to talk about the Spirit, and the Spirit is referred to as living water. So, we got, uh, yeah, we got, we got water back there. So, anyway. So, then, the Spirit is connected to the giving. Basically, the apostles present Jesus. Because he's enthroned, he then has the authority and ability to, to, to pour out the Spirit to his people. Okay. So those, those are all kind of together, like a network of events. Resurrection, ascension, and spirit. And it's basically the, the life and enthronement of the king, and then his gifts, the king's gift, the covenant blessing. Like the spirit being given to the people is the covenant blessing being poured out on the people. All that is Isaiah 55. He earned the blessing for us and is now pouring it out on his people, the, gift of, the new covenant gift of the spirit. So, okay, so that's kind of what overview of what it signals. So let's, let's look specifically at, I've got at least seven uh, my, indicators, interpretations of what, not different ones, but they're all together, of what the resurrection points to, what it, what it, what the, what it shows for us, okay? So what does the resurrection signal for us? 
Number one, it signals that the new, we'll just put it like this, the new has eclipsed the old. All right? The new has eclipsed the old. Now, I realize that's kind of vague because I'm about to fill that out. Okay? The new has eclipsed the old. So look with me in Luke 23. There's a new covenant, okay? So the new covenant has eclipsed the old in Luke 23, and he draws our attention to this in kind of a narrative way. At the end, after Jesus has died, he's laid in a tomb. These women, in verse 55, uh, prepare ointments for him. And if you look back in, actually, verse 54... After Jesus is taken down from the tomb, it says, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Saturday. The Sabbath was beginning. So he draws our attention to the Sabbath day, Saturday. The climax of the, of the, of the week of the Old Covenant. Day six. I'm sorry, day seven. And so... Draws our attention there, and then look in verse 56. They return and prepare spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. All right? According to the commandment. So they're presented as resting on the Sabbath, and now notice the, notice the transition as it takes place. Sabbath is kind of connected to the Old Covenant, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, but the spices they prepared weren't necessary because he wasn't dead. He had risen. So he rose on the first day of the week, it says, on Sunday. So the first day, as we'll see, that's going to become significant through the book of Acts, and it's so significant that it shifts the day from Saturday to Sunday in terms of when we celebrate because we're celebrating the resurrection. We're celebrating the new creation life that we have that occurred on the first day of the week. So, the point here is that Jesus is inaugurating this new creation. He's coming out of the dead. The week is over. Now the new creation has begun on the first day of the week. And again, if you know Luke, he says it's at early dawn. And that sunrise idea is full of Old Testament imagery for the dawning of the new covenant, the dawning of the new creation. As light begins to break in um, to, this, to this new creation. So it's very significant that all this happens the way it happens on this particular day of the week. So it signals that a new covenant is replacing the old, which Jesus already told us was going to happen in Luke 22. It signals that there's a, the, the new creation is, is in breaking into the old with the resurrection of the first man. And if you flip over, there's a lot we could talk about, but flip over to Acts 2. It shows us that there is a renewed kingdom. Renewed kingdom via the resurrection. So again, we're all under the, the first sign here. The, signals that it, the resurrection signals that the new has eclipsed the old. There's a new covenant in place of the old. There's a new creation in the midst of the old. And there's a renewed kingdom. Or a new kingdom in place you know, of the old. I kind of hesitate to say new kingdom because I don't, I don't see the, 
New Testament authors saying new kingdom. Um, they just talk about the kingdom. So um, not that that really matters, but that's kind of why I'm a little hesitant to call it that. And this is seen especially, you see it in, in Luke 23 and 24, but you see it clearly in Acts 2. This theme of, of the new kingdom. So after he ar- arises, Luke says, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them, to the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking to them about what? The kingdom of God. So for 40 days, he's teaching them about the kingdom. So then he continues, down in verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not a dumb question. Because he's been teaching them about the significance of the kingdom. But he says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They're talking full restoration of all that the prophets had predicted would take place. He's saying it's not for you to know that time. Because what's going to happen is as as they become the witnesses that Isaiah talks about, here, they're going to go out and they're going to witness to to the Jews. And exactly what Isaiah said would happen will happen. There will be a division right through the heart of Israel. Some Jews will believe and they will become a light to the nations. Other Jews will reject and they will be destroyed. We see that happen in AD 70. And all that Isaiah said would happen. If you remember back a couple weeks ago when we looked at that. That doesn't mean then that Israel, when, when Israel fully repents right before the return of Christ, Peter says this will usher in all of the, the promises made in the prophets um, to the fathers, meaning the full restoration of the new heavens and the new earth, the reign of the Messiah. He's, he's going to come and bring, make everything obedient to his, his will on earth. That's in Acts 3, by the way. Um, so my point here is that the kingdom is, it, the resurrection signals that the king is alive and that his kingdom is being inaugurated right now. And now is the time, like Psalm 2 talks about, to proclaim to the kings of the earth to take refuge in the sun. Before his, because his wrath is quickly kindled, Psalm 2 says. And he's going to come and crush the nations that don't. So now the kingdom has been renewed through the resurrection of the Son. And then in Acts 2, the kind of the climax of this is his ascension. So he goes up into heaven. Verse 9, when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now this cloud language is evocative of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man ascends to the Father in a cloud of glory, to receive a kingdom. So that's what you're supposed to hear here. He's going to the Father to receive a kingdom, meaning he's going to, to, to be seated at the Father's right hand and receive the kingdom authority. And now, through his witnesses, he's going to begin gathering citizens for this kingdom through the book of, through the book of Acts. So, what does the resurrection signal? Number one, it signals that the new has eclipsed the old. New days are here. All right, number two, it signals that God has confirmed and vindicated Jesus of Nazareth as his Davidic and Isianic Messiah. So you can just, it's a lot. It signals that he's confirmed the vindication of Jesus. He's vindicated Jesus, right? But in particular, he's vindicated him 
as this Messiah figure, the Davidic Messiah, the Isianic Messiah, the servant son, if you want to call him that. And that's super clear in Acts 2 and Acts 3, the two speeches of Peter, the first two. So just look with me here in, in Acts 2, uh, 24. We'll start in 22, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, this one, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here it is, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now here he's quoting... Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn and with it, sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. So the resurrection signals then that the eternal David has been vindicated. He is this one. He was the one predicted in 2 Samuel 7 and in Psalm 16. And then the ascension to God's right hand confirms this. Look, he goes on to talk about the ascension. This Jesus God raised up, verse 32, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. You hear that language? That's it. Being therefore exalted. So Jesus is raised up, and now he's exalted at the right hand of God. That's the ascension. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So this is Pentecost right here, Acts 2. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Paul makes, I'm sorry, Peter here is referring to the ascension and saying the ascension of the Father's right hand confirms that this is God's servant. This is the new David that's going to come, that David talked about, the offspring of David. And we're not going to go here, but you can write down Acts 13 and read that later, because it's Paul making similar arguments to another group of Jews later. But Paul adds in that text of Isaiah 55, which talks about the Isianic servant, the king, who would earn the blessings and Give them to the people as a result. So Paul himself connects those dots. So it confirms and vindicates Jesus. Um, It vindicates his innocence. You're going to see that again if you study these passages. So he was crucified, and the crucifixion means you're a criminal. But here the resurrection confirms that he was not a criminal. Something else was operative there, which means... Okay, this is our, number, our third signal here. It says that God has accepted, it signals, the resurrection signals that God has accepted 
Jesus is offering for sin. Okay? So if he was innocent, he wasn't a criminal, then why was he killed? Well, he was killed because of his atoning sacrifice, and the resurrection, his coming back from the dead, shows that, Jesus, that God has accepted it. This is clear in Romans 4.25, when Paul says that Jesus was raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. He says over in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus wasn't raised then it would signal God's disapproval, and, that, and Paul says we would still be in our sins if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So that's our, our third signal, that God has confirmed and vindicated Jesus of Nazareth is his Messiah. It, I'm sorry, it signals number four, that God has accepted his offering for sin. I'm all out of whack here. One, okay, ready? The old has eclipsed the new. New has eclipsed the old. Woo! Number two, that God has confirmed and vindicated Jesus. Number three, that God has accepted his offering for sin. Okay, number four, it signals that future resurrection is coming for us. Future resurrection is coming for us. In Acts 3.15 and in Acts 5.31, Peter calls Jesus the author of life. We hear that and we think like creation, right? Like he created everything. But the point, maybe I could translate it this way, the pioneer, the forerunner of life. He's the one that goes before everybody else in life. Meaning he's the first to come out of the dead, first to come back from the dead. He's broken it open for everybody else to follow. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He's the one that is cutting the path through the the forest so everybody else can follow him. So that's what he means when he says the author of life. And God raised him and made him the author of life. In Acts 4.2, it talks about the apostles proclaiming that in Jesus, in him, is the resurrection of all the dead ones. In him, in Jesus, is the resurrection from the dead ones. That's why Paul could say later that he's the first to rise from the dead. He's the first to rise from the dead, meaning there's a, lot, there's a train of people coming after him that will rise as well. So he is, he is the assurance, this, his resurrection signals our assurance that we, we too will be raised from the dead. Just like he was. The same resurrection body. Alright, that was number four. Number five, it signals that a new temple is under construction. His resurrection signals that a new temple is under construction. The temple Isaiah predicted that would be built, that would be built of people and not of necessarily stones. The people are the stones. It signals a new temple is under construction. Acts shows this theme very clearly. So let me just give you a few few points of connection, okay? The Spirit is poured out on the people. That, in Acts 2, that's told in a way that is evocative of the, of the Shekinah glory descending on the tabernacle and temple. It filled the house that they were in. filled them. And what's provocative about that is it filled them and not the actual temple building that was just across the street. The whole house shook, which again, symbolic of this Shekinah filling the people of the temple. And this is possible 
Because Jesus was raised from the dead, right? Like he was, he was enthroned, he's able to pour this out. He's able to make this happen. So he's able to start the temple building project because he's alive now and enthroned. Later in chapter 4 of Acts, Peter's going to describe Jesus as the cornerstone of the new temple. The stone that was rejected by the builders, i.e. The, the, the leaders of Israel. And that is another allusion to what the Psalms pattern. That's, a, that's from Psalm 118.22. That language is from Psalm 118.22. Meaning that David's life patterned this. He was rejected by the builders, and, but then God used him as sort of this cornerstone figure. And now, in this climactic way, it's, it's patterned of Jesus. Then in chapter 7 of Acts, just keep rolling, on, roll, rolling right along, so there's going to be this, this new temple there is, that's under construction. Stephen is going to go through the history of Israel, and he's going to remind the Jews that David wanted to build the temple, but it was his son Solomon who actually built it. And yet, he says, the Lord does not ultimately live in buildings made by human hands. And he quotes from Isaiah. And this implies that, that, that Jesus is not just a new David, but he's a new Solomon, and Solomon is, is building the temple that's not made with hands. He's building a temple, meaning it's, it's, it's out of people. It's not of human origin. It's, it's coming from God through his Messiah. And that's what Isaiah predicted would happen. And Isaiah is very important. Um, as you can see, and Isaiah also predicts that both foreigners and eunuchs will be part of this temple. Hang with me. In Luke, Gospel of Luke, Samaritans are called foreigners. The exact same word that's used in Isaiah, I think it's 56. Isaiah 56 of the foreigners. And eunuchs will be brought in. So, into this new temple. Under the old covenant, these foreigners and eunuchs were forbidden, but not under the new. So, Luke shows us a group of foreigners, Samaritans, who come into this temple in chapter 8, as well as a eunuch who comes into this temple also in chapter 8. Like they're side by side in the story. And the eunuch is described as a eunuch like 10 times or something in the, in the text. It was very odd. You know, it's like, why don't you call him his name? Like the eunuch, the eunuch, the eunuch did this, the eunuch did that, the eunuch did this. He's drawing our attention to the fact that the eunuch has come into this Isaiah temple. So, what's the point? All right, the new temple is under construction. Is the point, and it's 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 come to us via the resurrection of Jesus. So, as we believed, we're part of that new temple because he's been raised from the dead, because he's been enthroned on high. He can build the new temple. He is the new Solomon constructing his eschatological temple. What are we on? Somebody help me. Six. Okay. All right, number six. What else is a signal? It signals, the resurrection signals Christ's triumph over every evil power now and in the age to come. His triumph over every evil power both now and in the age to come. And we talked about this at length when we looked at Ephesians. We've talked about that at different points during the sermon, so I'm just going to keep this real brief. But Ephesians 1 and 2 talk about, talk about this. Um, Christ's triumph in, over evil powers. 
And in, in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul is bringing together these ideas from Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Psalm 8 talks about sort of, it kind of pictures David as, a, as, a, as an Adam figure who is in creation, is all, all things are subjected to him in creation. All things are under his feet. He has dominion over everything. And then Psalm 110 talks of, kind of, he combines it with Psalm 110, which is the exaltation of the Messiah at the Father's right hand, who's bringing all things under, you know, under subjection to, to the Father, bringing all things in accordance with his will. Peter makes this connection also in 1 Peter chapter 3. So the resurrection signals the triumph of, of Jesus over every evil power, which is why in Acts you see he can't be stopped. Like he cannot be stopped. He will build his temple. He will preserve his church. He will bring to fulfillment all of God's promises because he's enthroned. <laughs> he can't be stopped. Even his enemies, he turns them into promoting his purposes. Staggering. All right, and finally, last thing we see, and this segues into uh, our very last point, which will be very brief. It signals that he is the appointed judge. It signals that Jesus, this is number seven, I believe, it signals his appointment as judge, that Jesus is the appointed judge. And you see this in... Acts 10, 40, and 40, 40 through 42. It says here that God raised him from the dead, Acts 10, verse 40. He says, this is Peter talking to Cornelius. God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, Wait and drink them after he from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, this is the Jesus, he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So he's appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead via his resurrection. You see this again in Acts 17. Paul, talking to uh, Gentiles here, makes the same connection. In Acts 17.31, he says, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, how? By raising him from the dead. So the resurrection signals, is the assurance given, that this one, this Jesus, will surely judge the world in righteousness. But the standard of his righteousness. And so you can either receive his righteousness by faith, freely, or you can rebel against him and be crushed when he judges you by that standard of righteousness. So this segues into that fourth major event, the return of Jesus, and we're going to end here. Just give you some brief, brief data on this. Back in Acts 
there's some very interesting connections here. He says that in Acts 1.8 that Jesus is going to return the same way that we saw him go in that paragraph in Acts 1. So meaning he's going to descend in glory, in the clouds of glory, which again is evocative of Daniel 7. So both the ascension and the return of Jesus are sort of the bookends of Daniel 7. His ascension into glory and his return in glory, in the clouds of glory. And he's going to return with the full force of his kingdom. He's going to return, Acts 1 says, to the Mount of Olives. So that's significant. Because that's full of prophetic significance. The prophets talk about the the coming of the Lord to the Mount of Olives, splitting it open, a number of things happening there. He's going to return back to the Mount of Olives. And then Acts 3 says he's going to bring about everything that the prophets spoke. That's Acts 3.21. Peter talks about this. At his return, he's going to bring about everything the prophets spoke, the complete restoration, he says, of all that the prophets spoke about. So what is a complete restoration? Well, that's going to be the millennial kingdom. First, where all the world is obedient to the Son. Then there's that final rebellion by Satan, and then he conquers Satan via his people, through his you know, through his reign, described in Revelation 20, and then he hands the kingdom over to God the Father. And the new heavens and the new earth descend at that point. So he's going to bring about this full restoration. So just, I just want you to see that maybe if you, if you flip over to Acts 3. And it's very interesting that Peter's talking to a bunch of Jews right here because he tells them in, in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that's a reference to the Spirit, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So send him back, right? Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So what's interesting about that is that this indicates that when Israel, all of Israel repents, there's no divisions anymore within Israel, and Shia repents, that, that initiates the return of the Messiah to earth to bring about all of these things that were spoken about by the prophets. And which, right after this in chapter 4, they don't. There's division. Some of them believe, but as Paul would say, the rest were hardened. And that's a great mystery. He also talks about in, in Romans 11. Okay, we've got we to wrap this up. We are out of time. Okay. He's also going to go on to say here in this chapter, chapter verse 22, that he will destroy, the Messiah will destroy any who don't obey the command to repent and believe. He'll destroy them from the people. This fulfills the prophet like Moses whom God would raise up And it will also ultimately fulfill Psalm 2, where the Messiah will crush the nations who rebel against him when he comes back. And so, those are the features of of the gospel. The four main events at the heart of the gospel, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his, his return. Those are all in fulfillment of the scriptures that have come before. They look forward to the end. And these make up the components of what we believe, what we stand on, while we have life, while we have hope, and what we share with other people. So 
in, the, in weeks to come, we're going to talk, next week we're going to talk about the response of, of humans to this message. We'll kind of simplify the message a bit, right? And we'll talk about the response to the command to repent and believe in this king. All right, let's pray.